Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Sia Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are you? I'm enjoying the sun, Thea. How are you doing? Also enjoying the sun. Now, um, tell me of books, of reading. Uh, what adventures have you had since we last spoke? Well, I read Marlon James's Moon Witch Spider King. Ah. It's the second in a trilogy or actually I looked at our our review of it it's I should say triptych rather than trilogy and I haven't read the first one so it's a bit weird of me to just read the second one but the first one um was uh what I read about it was that it was very very violent um and and quite brutal and um I'm not always up for lots and lots of that um, so I read the second one, which is in it, which is in a different style. It's also pretty violent, actually. So maybe mm. I'll read the first one as well. Um, it's a big sort of sprawling epic story of a. Oh, it's kind of to do with 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 royal families and dynasties and the fate of nations and the fate of individuals. It's been compared a bit, and actually our review, Ross Caveney said that as well, that the world building has been compared to Tolkien and George R. R. Martin. Mm. Um, I don't know about George R. R. Martin, but I, I, I remembered about halfway through that it's been compared to Tolkien, which made me laugh because the world building is is on a similar scale, but it's a very different world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got loads of women in, apart from anything else. No hobbits. <laughs> this no no hobbits. Uh, th- this one is 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 much more concerned with women and the lives of women than with men. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of sex. Uh, there's a lot of bad language so all of that very un-Tolkien-esque mm. but um it's an amazing sort of uh time-spanning uh story there's there was a particular bit of it that was really very gripping and moving which I won't say in case people don't agree with me or they want to find out for themselves yeah I'm sure it'll be the latter um big sprawling epic is probably the exact opposite of my own reading <laughs> Have you been reading haiku? <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've just read um, 
it's a, a short novel by um by uh Claire Keegan it's called small things like these um and it came out just before Christmas and so Keegan Keegan's known mostly for short stories there were a couple of, of brilliant collections I think the first one was yeah the first one was Antarctica and that was 1999 and then there was Walk the Blue Fields um about 10 years after that um but this is a short novel um in fact you probably know her from um uh Foster which came out I think around the end of the last decade mm-hmm. uh, around the end of I think it was around 2010 um set in 1980s Ireland and that and that won loads of loads of prizes but um mm. so yes yeah, small things like these is is her is her latest and it's it's big and sprawling and epic it is not it is <laughs> it is it is tightly focused it's set in um in 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 Ireland it's set in a family it sticks very close to one man and his experiences and and it's a very quiet um very quiet novel which isn't to say that there isn't also violence it's just that the violence is is sort of pushed out into the margins um and you're aware it's the, it, it's about the magdalene uh, the magdalene laundries really oh yeah um yeah. and an encounter that this this you know this regular man family man um has with with um one of the the young women who is held in one of these magdalene laundries Mm. um and about the sort of the you know as so often with Keegan's work it's about secrets and families and you know goodness and darkness and and responsibility and she just writes so so beautifully you know it's one of those books where you just feel like you should have a a pencil in your hand at all times to underline Mm. these you know particularly striking observations or, or, or turns of phrase so quite different quite different to your reading I think perhaps we should swap round it sounds like possibly we should one yeah. will be a tonic for the other yeah exactly um, exactly yeah um okay well look coming up on this week's show east side voices a collection of essays celebrating east and southeast asian identity in britain looks to complicate stereotypes whether imposed by the self or society. And we have a focus on film this week, including Nosferatu at 100 and The Long Shadow of the Vampire, unsung heroines of the big screen, and a fresh look at the time Marilyn Monroe and Laurence Olivier clashed. But first, how can writers from violent countries find new ways to describe their experience? The question, put by our Hispanic editor Miranda France this week in a review of two works by the Mexican writer Fernanda Melchor, seems especially pertinent in relation to that country where last year alone 28,000 murders were reported, where, according to a recent report by Amnesty International, more than 10 women and girls are murdered each day. Fictional depictions of the brutality often seem to descend into gratuity and stereotype, and as the bodies pile higher and higher, readers might become numb and forget to ask, but why is it so? What made it this way? And maybe even, how does it relate to me? It takes imagination to keep focusing readers' attentions on the shocking reality, says Miranda France. And we should point out to listeners that to convey that shocking reality in the discussion about to follow, we will be touching on some pretty shocking themes and uh, language. Miranda joins us now to tell us more. Miranda, hello, and thanks for coming on. Hello, Thea. So the two books under review are um, Paradise, which is a kind of Mexican spelling of paradise, a novel uh, translated into English by Sophie Hughes, and Aquí no es Miami, which is a collection of uh, crónicas, which is a word we'll come back to uh, a bit later on, um, and they're in the original language. So listeners may 
be familiar, though, with um, Fernanda Melchor already. Yes, absolutely, because her um, previous novel to be translated into English, also by Sophie Hughes, was Hurricane Season, and um, that came out a couple of years ago and uh, was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, um, won another international prize and, and was generally very um, well received and acclaimed. And, and Melchor is, she's part of a, a generation really of, of young Mexican writers, isn't she, who, who sort of uh, trying to find new ways of, of, of telling their country stories. Yes, I guess um, Valeria Luiselli and Yuri Herrera, these are other writers who are also, some people might say, almost reacting to the uh, magical realist um, Latin American chapter uh, with um, a very different um, approach to their continent's history and reality. Grittier, I suppose you might say, less well, lyrical in a way, but with a, a kind of a violent lyricism. Mm, when I read um, when I read Hurricane Season, I read it at home. And I remember not long after I was sitting on the tube opposite a woman who was reading it um, on, on the tube. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure I could have read it in public. I mean, it's, it's just so, uh, so brutal. But in a way, that banal setting of her reading, it's kind of the truest way of experiencing it, isn't it? You say it's the absence of shock that is, is shocking. Yes, there's something about um, her very pragmatic approach. Um, I mean, if you see her speak too, she's uh, quite a level-headed kind of person. Um, I mean, these are these are brutal books. They're ones that you might hesitate to recommend to everybody. Um, it's not the kind of book that you say, "Oh, I loved that." Um, but at the same time, she's doing something quite different, I think, and that's that the violence is, is seeded through the whole, the whole narrative. Um, people mm. are constantly thinking of um, what they may do to try to improve their circumstances, um, whatever the cost to, to other people around them. There's a lot of swearing and um, charged language. Um, so there aren't sort of nice bits and then, and then you know, horrifying bits. There's a, there's a sort of even tone of brutality throughout. You, you describe Milchor's sentences as, as sinuous. I think there's one towards the end of, 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 of the new novel, um, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second, which is six pages long. And that's kind of par for the course with, with her, isn't it? I mean, it sort of explains why I and, and many others, I think, find you tend to find yourself reading her in almost like one sitting, even though you do have to pause sometimes because of the intensity of, of it all. But can you tell us a bit more about, about this, this style of Milchor? Because it, it is pretty distinctive. Yes, I mean, you might get a sentence lasting um, half a page or a page and just broken up with, with commas. It's not hard to follow, though. I mean, it's enormously to Sophie Hughes's credit that it isn't difficult to follow. You don't ever feel that you're getting lost. Um, the, the clauses just are separated by, by, by commas without any intervention of a full stop. So when a full stop comes along, it feels like, you know, it feels like a bit of a moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's the time to stop and, and 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 go and make yourself a cup of tea if you need to <laughs> stop and breathe um Miranda can I ask you about Sophie Hughes's translation please because it's it's yeah. a very interesting um, point that you bring up and also I need to ask about it because we have to do full disclosure oh I can't Sophie, yeah no Sophie Hughes is a good body of Thea so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna ask you about the translation and how she how she manages that style and that voice it's really interesting because I feel that she sort of establishes a voice of her own. There are some really um, sort of Anglo-Saxon and, and Britishisms, um, you know, and sometimes sometimes there are words that are 
quite old fashioned like Sunshine and Scamp that um, you don't hear people using so much anymore. Um, elsewhere, we've got Construct and Lardas and um, more sort of, um, I mean, I'm quite envious of her because I translate as well. And um, when I'm translating, I'm not allowed any Britishisms and um, I can't tell you the number of LNs and tossers that you know, I've had to sacrifice because Americans won't, won't, um, won't get it. But I mean, I'm not even allowed pavement or, or flat or lift or anything like that. So I was interested that um, she has got very much, she's got kind of quite a British uh, lexicon, but I asked, I did ask her editors about it at Fitzcarraldo, which is the publisher. And she told me that that a British and an American editor worked with with Sophie. And I, I think I don't know if I'm wrong, but I think perhaps a slightly kind of Americanized version may come out for the American market. But I, I do think that that gives it a lot of credibility somehow that it is in a language that feels true to to what Sophie wanted and that hasn't tried to, you know, to, to please everybody in all in all different markets. You said it's 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 very it's got its own distinctive tone, yes. which gives a sense of the of the narrative being told because that's in a particular place, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's in um, Veracruz, which is um, a port city on um, on the east coast, and uh, Fernanda Melchor grew up there. Although I believe that she's now based in Puebla, near to Mexico City. Um, so the language is is quite local to there. Yes, maybe even to a sort of a, a particular. Um, section of that society. When I read Aquino es Miami in Spanish, there were, uh, because I've lived a, lo- a long time in Argentina, but you know, I don't know that part of Mexico. So um, a lot of it was quite, was not um, familiar to me at all. So it's a very, mm. it's a very local um, slang and um, style. Is it almost as though the, um, the English slang is like a kind of dialect of the larger language which which the one that's most spoken in the world is American English and maybe this local Mexican is like a dialect of the larger Spanish that most of the world speaks would that would that be in any way um, accurate do you think? Well maybe I mean I think there's certainly a sense of a local dialect being um, being created in English I think that's what's so clever I think Sophie Sophie makes it feel as though it is a local dialect and yet it isn't actually um, I don't think it can, it, it isn't specific to any one place. I mean, it's certainly not, you know, London or Yorkshire or, or you know, Scotland. Or I mean, it's, it is something mm. that I feel she has created um, a dialect that, that works or a, or a kind of a range of vocabulary that works um, for this translation. So I think it's, you know, I think it's very cleverly done. Mm. And as you say, it sort of spans time um, in a way. Um, so you mentioned Gabriel Garcia Marquez earlier. Um, Melchor has herself cited um, the influence of him, I think, in terms of, 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 of the way she narrates things. I mean, how, you, you tell me, how does, how does this influence manifest in, in her prose? Um, well, yes, it's not, a, it's not an influence that I would have picked up, but I did see her saying that she learnt this idea of the narration that is partly um, in the head of the characters and partly the narrators. I mean, I suppose it's a version of the free and direct style, isn't it, where something is, somebody is thinking something, but they're thinking it with words and maybe a language that that, that person wouldn't actually use. So you have a sense of being both in the character's mind but also um, removed and and um, and being shown this character through the narrator. 
Can you give us a taste of that in, in the new novel, in, in Paradise? There is a place where one of the characters is describing this sort of sexy um, resident who lives in the housing estate that we haven't actually quite talked about yet. And, and he's talking about her, he's describing her body in a very sort of um, articulate and sophisticated kind of way, not the sort of way that a 16 year old would usually talk about, um, would usually talk about a woman. Mm. So he's using language that he wouldn't usually use, but but we somehow buy it. We understand that. I think we understand that we're doing two things at once. We're seeing what this character thinks, but we're also seeing the narrator, um, the narrator's interpretation of that. Mm, so it's kind of unusual because, yeah, you're, you're at once very much in the thick of it, in, in, in the very specific place um, and mind of this person at the same time as observing it at a slight, at a slight remove. So this is the character of Paolo who... Um, who narrates the whole of the novel um, Paradise. So tell us, tell us who he is and, and, and give us the bones of the story. So the story is set in a residential complex called Paradise. It's been given an English name, Paradise, um, you know, to, to, to kind of sell this North American dream to middle-class Mexicans who want to live in a gated community with, with security and, um, and also, you know, lovely swimming pools and, and whatever. Um, Polo can't really pronounce it properly so he's sort of taken up a couple of times by people saying no 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 it's paradise it's, it's not because you know it should be um, paraiso in Spanish and um, so that's why the novel is spelt the way that uh, a Mexican ear would hear the English word paradise um, so within this residential complex the there are different neighbours and uh, one family um, are um, Marianne and her husband, who is a sort of a, a small-time TV celebrity, and um, she's a bit of a trophy wife, um, very beautiful, very groomed, you know, with with all of the right plastic surgery, etc. And um, one of the one of her neighbours is this boy Franco, who's I think about fifteen or sixteen. I know he's definitely um, under sixteen. And he lives in the, the same complex with his grandparents. And he's obviously, uh, he's, he's destined to go to a military academy. So they, they must already feel that he's a troublesome child. But he seems to be um, left to his own devices a lot of the time. And he's sort of addicted to hardcore pornography and always eating a kind of Mexican version of cheesy Watsits. So he's got sort of, you know, orange cheesy crisp powder on his hands all the time. <laughs> <laughs> he's rather an unappetizing um, character. He's described as having sad man boobs at one stage. And he forms this sort of maybe entirely not unusual teenage fixation on the beautiful Marianne. But it really is a fixation and it becomes um, an obsession. And he starts going into the family's house when they're not at home and sort of taking bits of underwear and so on. And, um, and we begin to get a sort of horrible, gut-wrenching feeling that this obsession is going to play out in some quite nasty way. Um, and all of this is, is, is narrated from, from Paolo's perspective, isn't it? So who, who's Paolo? That's right. Paolo is the kind of general dog's body. Um, he looks, I think he cleans the swimming pools, he picks up litter, he does various menial jobs around, um, around the, the site. And he hangs out with um, Franco, the um, the porn obsessed teenager because they're much the same age and because Franco is able to get hold of things like alcohol and cigarettes from home and, and bring them to him so he's um, so it's a kind of a French I don't know friendship is the right word but it's an arrangement of convenience 
um, for Polo, who is from a very poor background, where most of his friends have either had to leave the city, which is called Progreso, rather mm. um, ironically, uh, or they've they've been tempted to join um, drug cartels, or you know they've been co-opted into various kinds of um, low life um, criminal activity. Mm. One of the most striking things, and this is the same in hurricane season, is is how young the characters are to be so uh, utterly broken or, you know, fallen to use the, the, the biblical word, which seems right, I guess, in the context of paradise and, um, and so on. As you say, they're 16 and 15, and yet they're so, 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 so corrupted by, yes. by the country in which they live. Yes, and in fact, Polo is, is about to become the father of his cousin's child, which uh, is another, I mean, he doesn't even really quite seem to understand how that, how that was able to happen. Um, but um, so that's another part of his, of his very dismal situation. And he's very much aware of the fact that, well, he sees that, that um, joining a cartel might be the only, the only way of, um, of getting any serious money and maybe being able to leave home and, um, and improve his chances. But Franco also, um, opens the door to the possibility of getting money because he suggests that Polo break into these rich neighbors' house with him. And mm-hmm. um, Polo thinks that he might be able to steal some stuff then and sell it and, you know, make some money that way. Mm-hmm. So that's how he gets roped into this um, plot to, to break into the, uh, to Marianne's house. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, you say the author wants to understand the violence, not merely condemn it. And this is the crucial distinction, isn't it? I mean, that's what, that's what elevates this work. Yes, I think so. Well, I mean, I suppose it's partly the way that she puts us into their minds and we see their reasoning. I don't think that's so much the case with Franco. He really does seem like sort of quite a nasty, um, unlovable character. But Polo is, is constantly mulling over his options and, um, all of all all of the things that count against him, and so we do see a, we do have more sympathy with his position. I mean, even in in hurricane season, there are um, one of the characters has been has been raped by her stepfather from quite an early age, and yet somehow we see how these things happen in families that are you know living in a one room um, in in very miserable and poor conditions. So she makes a lot of things that seem unacceptable somehow understandable, very cleverly so. Mm. And it's that same drive, isn't it, that, 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 that leads um, Melchor in her cronicas. Um, you, you also review this collection called Aquino es Miami. So um, that, that desire to understand. What can you tell us about these, these shorter works? Uh, well, I think they were mostly written in probably the first decade of this century, and um, a lot of them are, um, well, she calls them crónicas because that is a style, again, quite associated with Gabriel García Márquez. It's a kind of storytelling journalism, so you're not necessarily on the spot for for the um the news story that you're talking about, but you're kind of piecing it together through conversations and um, the memories of other people. So a lot of them spring from conversations with people who work in the port area of um, Veracruz. Um, And some of them are inspired by her own memories. For example, her memory of being on a beach as a small child and thinking that she's seen a UFO. And this is during a time when UFO 
UFOs are terribly, you know, fashionable and exciting for children. And um, she later finds out that it's actually um, drug traffickers landing on the beach um, mm. with a haul of cocaine. And there's something about that one that, that resonates so much with the rest of the work. It's almost like if, you know, if there's any whisper of another world, you know, a magical plane of a Marquisian sort, it's sort of hollowed out and brought crashing back to reality when she realises that this isn't, this isn't, you know, strange outsiders looking for a better world. It's, it's drug cartels and, 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 and very real violence. Yes, absolutely. And as you said before, uh, there's the kind of, um, awakening to this at a very early age because she was only about nine or ten when that incident happened. Um, so there is there is kind of a sad um, poignancy to it, the, 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 the corrupting of people from an early age um, into, into the reality of, of their situation. And this was a particularly violent time in Veracruz, I think, when the cartel Los Setas was, um, was, was dominating life. I believe that they that they no longer exist, but uh, but you know it's still obviously drug crime is still is still driving a lot of brutality in Mexico. There's another one that you mentioned that sounds um, particularly vividly drawn. I think um, involving some dock workers. That's right. Yes, there's a group of dock workers who are sitting in the port in Veracruz having a break when um, some um, I think about six or so. Um, Dominicans suddenly appear on the docking area and they've been hiding underneath the, the pier, I suppose it is, um, holding onto pilings. And they are stowaways from a ship that was carrying timber to Miami. Um, and they've been counting the number of stops until they had to get off. And they f- think that, 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 that they have now got off in Miami. And um, they have to be told that this isn't Miami, hence the, the title of the essay collection, and that actually Miami is still, I don't know, about a thousand miles away. They then, I think, disappear into, into the city um, and we don't know what happens next. We see that her, you know, her, her non-fiction in these cronicas is, is quite like a fiction. It's very, very dialogue driven, multivocal, making us sit so close to these people that she's writing about. Yes. And she also uses different styles because in some of them, she uses an awful lot more sort of dialect and slang in, in others, um, much less so. And then there are some where there's a, a collection towards the end that are all narrated in the second person. Uh, so she's talking about these characters and she calls them you all the time, which has quite an effective way of making, I think, making the reader also feel involved somehow. Absolutely. It sounds like a particularly powerful way to end the collection and, and unfortunately to end our conversation as well, because we've kept you uh, long enough. Uh, Miranda France, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. Still to come on the show, 100 Years of Vampire Films, another look at a well-known chapter in the story of Marilyn Monroe, and a collection of essays on East and Southeast Asian identity in Britain. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, and now we have celebrations of the world of film coming up from the biggest stars to the unsung heroines with a couple of monsters in between. And we're going to discuss those with Michael Keynes of this parish. But first, we're going to talk about a different kind of celebration. Michael has reviewed a book this week called East Side Voices, Essays Celebrating East and Southeast Asian Identity in Britain edited by Helena Lee, and he's here to talk it through with us. Michael, thanks very much for coming on. My pleasure. Um, we'll get to the celebration idea um, in a minute and whether you feel that it, that it, fo- that it fits this book. Um, but first, can you tell us what sort of book it is, what, it, what it's made up of? Yeah, sure. I mean, essentially, it's an essay collection. It's the idea of somebody called Helena Lee, who is the features director at Harper's Bazaar, and a couple of years ago, um, with fantastic timing, she had a great idea, which was to start a salon at a central London hotel that would focus on the sort of what you might call the, the Asian diaspora and the experience of people from all around the place in East and South Asia in Britain. So in some cases, people who are you know first or in other cases, second generation immigrants and celebration is part of it but I think there's other things in the book too and it's a really interesting range of contributors I think you have um quite interesting poets like Mary Jean Chan you've got Claire Coder who writes occasionally for the PLS and just mm. as a first novel published and you've also got people from the theatre and um the kind of world of cuisine so I, I think it's quite an interesting mixture and so it started out as a live event, like a kind of like a salon, like a gathering where people talk. But then did that have to stop very quickly because of COVID? 
Yes, I think it did. I mean, I think as my memory is, I had a little bit of correspondence actually um, with some people who were involved in it. My memory is they did manage to fit in some live events and they must have worked and gone down well. But actually, as it happens, it's worked out quite nicely as a kind of, you know, lockdown book that presumably a lot of those things that have been presented first in spoken form could be turned into essays. And, and some of them bear a little bit more of a trace of having started out as a talk and others are more fully formed um, as kind of written pieces. There's, there's one that has um, a postscript that works really well, I think. That, that seems to me something that only came along later. Mm-hmm. And um, why do you think, I don't mean it isn't a celebration, i.e. celebration of all sorts of different people's experience and um, uh, and feelings, but the, I, I get the, the, the idea from you that it, it's not exactly a celebration because a lot of them are recounting really unpleasant or difficult um things that have happened to them exactly yeah i think uh, i don't want to completely uh denigrate the term it does feel to me like it's come from the marketing department and if there's anything being celebrated it might be say fortitude or, or defiance but on the other hand they're definitely writing about experiences of being what i think i think one scholar writing about the sort of british chinese experience has said you're often visible visible but unseen visible but unseen so you're there but you're not really you know you might just be taken to be say you're just a kind of stereotype of a Mm. Chinese person or you might be the stereotypical shy you know barely speaking Japanese girl in the call of the room or something like that one of the sort of stereotypes that go around a lot so uh, in different ways these contributors write about that I'll just give you one example as I've mentioned her I think Claire Coder's um contribution is an essay I think called Portraits and it's about she was recollecting a childhood experience of being presented with her own portrait drawn uh, sorry painted for her in acrylic by a family member but it's quite shocking because she's kind of being lighter so she has light skin and sort of brown hair rather than black hair and her eyebrows have been changed and that, that kind of thing so it's, it's sort of that essay in particular is an investigation of this kind of I, I don't know, is it an unconscious change or is it something that this family member has deliberately done and you find out really what's happened over the course of the essay. But it opens up, the, the whole collection as a whole, opens up all kinds of fascinating, odd experiences, some of which might just be sort of, counters as sort of microaggressions, but others are really quite nasty. And somebody definitely talks about, you know, getting a bit of abuse on Twitter in the age of the so-called China virus. So some of it is very... Mm-hmm pertinent and up to the minute and you know some of it is is seriously nasty so definitely not a straightforward celebration I'd say. Yes I was going to ask about uh, whether the timescale allowed for uh, for Covid in there and whether people's experiences got worse since Covid because as you say it was you know was uh, kind of ridiculously named the China virus and I think um, that had that did have uh, an adverse effect on the way people uh, treated people from um, East and Southeast Asia didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, and, and there's, uh, you know, this is an ambivalent answer myself, but in a way I can see evidence of how people have been affected over the past couple of years, um, even if it's just a case of getting an abuse. But somebody writes about, um, called Zing Cheng writes about somebody moving away from her on the tube, because obviously she's disease carrying Asian, oh, which gosh. is just so nasty. But yeah. then, I, I mean, that's ridiculously light way to describe it. But But on the other hand, it feels to me as well like some things haven't changed very much and some of the stereotypes that um, the thing Cheng writes about um, they seem to me unchanged 
from the university days that Charlene Teo writes about um, in her contributions to this collection. She's got a piece called something like, I think it's called Mistaken for Strangers. And they both really write about the danger of these stereotypes and also how um, there's a kind of what W.E.B. Du Bois calls that double consciousness idea that you're seeing yourself, you're trying to see yourself, or you're forced to see yourself as others see you and play a sort of quite dubious kind of game. And, you know, even certain, certain contributors write about a kind of self-hatred or, a desire, you know, almost like a falling in with the more racist elements in society and the desire to reject part of their heritage, which is, you know, frank, you know, scary kind of stuff. But they also talk about how they were cut, they were being cut off. So um, Gemma Chan, for example, the actor, she talks about how her father just doesn't really talk about his experiences in the British Merchant Navy. And when she prompts him, this incredible story kind of emerges. Uh, so ideas like that seem to me, you know, to have a basis in history. There is a continuum at the same time as I think the collection really nicely does bring the story up to date. Mm. You say they are essays in a key of ambivalence. Is is that because of the all those different things that, that people have to navigate? Because you mentioned that it might be from a stranger or one of them is from a family member or it might be your own expectations. It's other people's expectations having to mix them. Is Is that why or is it something else? Yes, I think that's very much that's very much what it is. Is that you know that that um, word in the subtitle? I mean, the idea of celebrating some of these experiences just seems weird, um, and yet there is an element of that. So, for example, um, there's um, there's a piece by a chef called Andrew Wong, which I thought was in a way quite um, inspiring, in a way it kind of read as a bit of kind of, I don't know, propaganda for his restaurants because he was talking about the kind of fusion food he was doing. So it's a different way of looking at his life experiences. I mean, it's really drawn from a kind of professional, uh, uh, you know, professional research really. And, and I thought in a way that was a celebration, in a way it was also one of the less interesting pieces because there wasn't really that kind of drama in it. Uh, and I, I think that's, Throughout, there's this throughout through all the all these pieces. There's just running this kind of um, curious mixture of being under the cosh here in Britain, and yet sort of reaching back to and often drawing on the memories of forebears in Shanghai or Singapore or or Malaysia. You know, and, and interesting things come out there, and they have a. They have, it's not the same flavour, but they have very interesting. There is a sort of celebratory edge to those memories, I think which was mm. very beautiful to read. So, I mean, I definitely, you know, recommend the collection to somebody who's interested in, in the subject, but I'd say, you know, maybe don't take, take the subtitle with a pinch of salt. Yes, maybe it's a celebration of, of, of resilience and, as you say, fortitude, um, rather than certainly not celebrating any of the, the experiences that they're talking about. Yeah, if they, if they reissue it in paperback, they don't need to change anything. They just need to adjust the title and then they can say it's a revised <laughs> edition, brand new. Yeah, there you go. We changed one word and <laughs> now it's different. Then. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about how to move from here to the subject of film and particularly women in film and thinking maybe it's something to do with being seen and appreciated for who you are and what you do and not somebody else's projection of you. That that may be a bit tenuous, but I'm afraid that that's the best I've got. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that works well. Like I said, Gemma Chan, there are two... Um, Two actors in that East Side Voices book. Gemma Chan doesn't really write about her own experiences in um, film 
and TV, but Katie Young does. She was in the Harry Potter film and mm. she has some quite interesting things, I think, to say exactly along those lines of you're there to probably say somebody else's words and be, you know, groomed to look like somebody completely different from you. But then all, it's a very, it's very uncomfortable ground. And she writes about how there's this assumption when she does a TV show that her character looks Chinese and will speak with a Chinese accent. Now, Katie is Scottish. And so eventually I think she, he argued with the producers and said, no, look, I, it's just a stupid idea. Can I, I, you know, I can't remember what she chose in the end, but she would have to kind of take on this fake Chinese accent to play the role. That, that, yes, that, that seems like the, a weird way to go about things, doesn't it? It is weird when you're talking about somebody who was herself, not, you know, not speaking with Chinese accents, perfectly normal thing, isn't it? Yes, 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 of course. And so if we're going to turn, turn towards film, which there's, a, there's a, a number of books that are in the issue um, this week. The first of them is about someone that we all think we're familiar with, uh, Marilyn Monroe. It's called When Marilyn Met the Queen by Michelle Morgan, about the time she spent in Britain making The Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier. Michael, does our reviewer, Jeanette Vincendo, does she think it adds to our understanding of Marilyn Monroe or of that time? Yes. I mean, I think she has, uh, she, she sort of, I, it's a lovely piece, by the way, I should say, and it's, uh, I've got a copy of the book myself, just started on it, it seems fascinating, but it, it is quite well um, trodden ground. I mean, I think Sarah Churchill most recently has written about, written about it, but of course, Ron, Ron Rose's life has been gone over so many times before, and this is quite mm. a famous little incident in it, in that she came over to um, Britain to make a film um, called *The Prince and the Showgirl*. It's based on a on a Terence Rattigan play called um, *The Sleeping Prince*. And Olivier Lawrence Olivier had um, played one of the lead roles on stage with Vivian Lee. This film uh, uh, was being made by Monroe's own production company, um, and she came over to uh, England in the sort of latter half of 1956. But and Olivia was directing and producing and acting in it, and they really didn't get along. I mean, he definitely called her a bitch behind her back and complained about the, her lack of professionalism. And meanwhile, she was trying to meet the Queen, and apparently he stymied that, and she only got to meet... There's a great photo that's in the TLS this week of... Um, the Queen and Marilyn Monroe meeting in the, in the you know lineup. It is a wonderful photo. It's a great photo, isn't it? You know, she just looks like it. Just looks like I mean, really, it looks like a bunch of blokes and then a sort of apparition in the middle of the bunch of blokes. <laughs> you think of the Queen going, "Oh, hi, I know who you are." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It sort of sums up that kind of bombshell effect. And the thing that I think Michelle Morgan apparently captures really well, um, according to Jeanette Vincendo, is is a sense of what the kind of impact um, was like, you know, that not it's not only Marilyn Monroe that you've kind of got Arthur Miller in tow. And, mm. you know, people were obviously most keen to see her, but they were kind of spying on them and there were competitions to imitate her or to look alike and things like that. You can really see that the, just for a time, you know, the press and the public went a bit mad over her. And digging that story up has obviously taken a lot of work. And Morgan apparently, you know, has some very interesting sort of takes on other people's versions, but doesn't, doesn't push them hard, let's say. She sort of buries them a bit in the footnotes and things like that. So I'm intrigued and I'm hoping to read on and discover exactly what, what that means. Um, it's interesting um, on uh, the Olivier point, though, how, I mean, you could see how she was, she would have been such a threat to him. The clash between them was so, had so many dimensions to it. It was, you know, not only uh, man versus woman, but young versus old and, 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 
um, American versus versus British establishment versus outsider, all of these all of these strands to it. You can see how he must have just been kind of incensed by her, the audacity of her. <laughs> it was pretty horrible to her. I Absolutely. I think he said one piece of his direction was something like I, I'm probably misquoting it already, but I think he tried to direct her and he said, try and be sexy. And apparently she just didn't forgive him because it was clearly meant as a as a slide or to say, you know, this isn't acting, whatever it was. And I think it, it sort of it occurs to me, it's interesting that, of course, he did break the role with, with Vivian Lee. And then along comes, yes, Marilyn Monroe, who's completely different, is, a, you know, is being coached in the method or reminded about the method school of acting on set, which must mm. have really annoyed him. So mm. it's funny because it's sort of replicating the unlikeliness of the story it, itself, which is you know, a slightly odd one anyway. It's, a, it's you know, it's a weird romantic um, comedy, but they're meant to be an unlikely sort of couple, I think, in that. And there it is being played out behind the scenes. And in a way that's become more important and sort of better than than the film itself. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> recommend the film itself as, as the first Monroe or Olivia film to see. <laughs> I've seen a little bit of it and he looks like he's he's just eaten a bit of lemon before many of the scenes. <laughs> he looks a bit more natural than him. Yes, he looks more at home. I think it's it's definitely Marilyn one, Larry nil. <laughs> not not that we're counting, but yes, it definitely I'm, is. I'm, ca- I'm counting, I'm counting. <laughs> um, and in the next piece, our reviewer, who is also called Marilyn, Marilyn Ann Moss, she reads um, biographies and autobiographies of character actors and stars and looks behind the scenes as well at the women who make the films. Michael, it seems as though the modern celebrity memoir, there's an example here from Mina Suvari, is very different to the old school one. Mm. There's one from Hayley Mills. Is that the case, do you think? Or is there actually a common thread running through them? Yes, I was wondering about this. I mean, I'm really pleased we could manage to fit the piece in because I think Marilyn Ann Moss has given us a nice kind of, you know, a sort of conspectus. You know, she's looking around the world of film and it's all about, you know, these women who have to deal with, again, ordeals or, you know, uh, great success and fame, which is troublesome in itself. And I thought, well, fame is kind of, or fame and career are kind of the um, you know threads that run through this story because it goes from somebody who's a relatively um, you know early uh, screen performer called Patience Collier who isn't the sort of household name now but did you know had quite a long career um, and overcame various prejudices had a husband who didn't really want her on the stage and was I'm sorry on screen was seems to have been a you know cantankerous character in some ways. Hayley Mills, who was sort of very protected, I think, by her family. At least that's the impression I have. And she was, you know, she felt the pressure. She was working on big films for Disney, like Pollyanna. And so she, you know, she clearly felt that. Um, but she was, she was in this sort of tight-knit unit. And Mina Savari is dealing with fame while really suffering the fallout from early, early trauma in her life, you know, and didn't really have much support. So... They have very, I think, different experiences, uh, just to deal with those um, three particular cases. Um, Different experiences, but I think they are facing some of the same kind of challenges in the sense, for example, on screen, they're all having to deal with, I don't know, the standard available roles and genre of the day. Hayley Mills playing Pollyanna is, you know, it's like a, that's a classic Disney case. Mina Savari, very different period, being plunged in kind of, you know, quite sort of laddish things like American Pie or something like that. You know. 
um, and was great in American Beauty and now seems to be, you know, making a bit more of a, of a comeback and writes about her life in very, very interesting ways. Those are the ones that we know about, as it were. We know their names, if maybe not Patience Collier quite so much. But the problem um, with talking about the unsung heroines, uh, with the, who she, Marilyn Ann Moss also talks about, is exactly that, isn't it? That they're unnoticed and we don't have necessarily individual stories or names to pick out. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, uh, this is something that um, I think Marilyn Ann Moss sort of points out that you just have thousands of people working in thousands of different jobs uh, on films. And they might be jobs that even though they're officially not given, you know, a high billing, like a draftswoman, that draftswoman then might have to step in for the film's art director and have, might have to make a sort of significant decision. Or you've got people who obviously design costumes, but also make the costumes. It's just, you know, it's an absolute army behind the scenes. And the point of the book she's reviewing called Movie Workers, um, I think isn't really to dwell on one or two individuals, but to sort of um, assess the scale of that and to sort of dig out from the archives the fact that this happened and it's not this kind of, I don't, you know, the kind of male auteur director thing is just so tedious. And this is kind of the alternative to that. It reminds me that there's, um, there's a reference or, you know, several references in Catherine Mansfield's um, life writings about kind of being an extra, I think, in the movies. And we, of course, only know about that because it's Catherine Mansfield and she mentions it in these marvellous sort of life writings of hers. And you can go looking for her in what survives of footage from the right sort of month or year and the way she describes what she had to wear and things like that. But she's describing an experience that thousands of women and, and obviously some men too have had to do completely and not anonymously. To wrap things up, um, Adam Mars-Jones looks back for us at 100 years of Mona's Nosferatu, the forbidden granddaddy of the vampire film, maybe even of the horror film. And so he says if, if um, Nosferatu is the granddaddy, then Drea's Vampire, celebrating its 90th birthday, must count as the genre's eccentric great uncle, seeming a bit vague at times, but remarkably spry. He also... Uh, takes a look at Werner Herzog's Nosferatu and Francis Ford Coppola's um, Dracula, their offerings. Uh, Michael, do we think Nosferatu holds up? It does have some wonderful and uh, very, very influential scenes in it, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. I think I last saw it when they held open-air screenings Oh God, on the roof of the National Theatre, which must be years ago. So I, I actually thought about this and thought I would love to see it again. It is so bonkers and it's not just the really famous moments obviously like Nosferatu sort of um appearing on the deck of the ship or you know the very end of the film with the well it not spoil that just in case people haven't seen it but it's very very <laughs> famous moments I think they're marvelous and I think that's true of a lot of sort of Murnau's um early work I should I should mention that Conrad Veidt who is his vampire who is Nosferatu had already played um the sort of the dual role of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from an hour, um, I think a few years earlier. And they're all kind of worth a look. Some of them have, you know, a lot of intertitles, a lot of kind of staginess that Adam Mars Jones writes about in early films. But it's a re it really is, uh, you know, quite, quite, a, quite a sort of gripping kind of film. And I think I completely agree with Mars Jones about um, Carl Dreyer's Vampire, which is an amazing poetic work. I mean, in, in a way, it's the more complete, more poetic uh, film Mm. But I think, you know, I, I like the idea of it being the, the eccentric great uncle. It has, it's got some, again, bonkers sequences that are just very memorable. And how do we feel about the other ones? He says, he points out that, that Vampire has got their, their non-professional actors because 
because at that stage, actors are stage actors, I think, basically. Mm. You don't have screen actors yet. And the stage actors, what they do is far too big for the screen. So uh, you're, you're sort of trying out new people. Um, and he also points out that the the Werner Herzog is, um, his one is notable because uh, he says Herzog being Herzog, it's got real dead bodies at the beginning. He just sort of can't help himself. It starts with the catacombs, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's an astonishing opening and... It's just stills, really, of those um, Mexican sort of corpses. Um, it's not to be watched either if you have a fear of rats, which come into it. No. Um, it's, it's mm. you know, it's it's really stunning. So I think he's, he's picked out some good ones. I, I mean, I think it's clearly such a brilliant challenge for cinema. And I wonder if that's that point about non-professional actors is interesting to me because... I'm thinking of a recent film, relatively recent film, like, do you, you, have you seen you know, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? Which is the kind of Iranian, very hip, yeah. very cool Iranian sort of take by Anna Lily Amapour um, from several years back. And that's black and white. It's set in this modern, sort of boiling hot kind of world in this Iranian community. And the point is that there's a lot of kind of stillness in it. And because it's black and white, it does deliberately kind of, I think, hark back. It just, you know, nods to. Um, Nosferatu maybe or you know just nods to Vampire where there is again a lot of stillness a lot of just moments where you're not there's something very uncanny going on you're not quite sure what's what's going to happen but the, the non-professional actors point going back to those initial films I think is is interesting because in, in a lot of those Murnau films you do see a lot of stage acting that can be quite quite large quite difficult to take in now <laughs> and in these early films, of course, you know, Nosferatu himself throws up his arms in horror and does all kinds yes. of extraordinary sort of um, facial gestures, really. Um, so it's it's fascinating, I think, to think about people just experimenting with the genre, with the form, you know, making a film language really from scratch. Yes. And it's interesting, too, on that point of, of, of language, of, of, of visual language, I suppose, how, um, how the arrival of the, you know, the advent of colour on screen mm. kind of changed the, the role that blood could play. Uh, in in the story yes and the color the color red in the Francis Ford Coppola film which I hadn't really thought about before yes I mean Coppola's film is is an astonishing kind of feast really I mean in some ways it's the most ridiculous of the films that Mars Jones mentions isn't it isn't it in some ways it's very silly and it has a somewhat but that's part of the fun surely <laughs> yes. the hamminess is part of absolutely. the reason we talk about these films still i was about to say yeah in some ways it's the silliest absolutely yeah. i yeah. think there there is a connection between the the, the the sort of stage acting we were you know just talking about <laughs> and coppola's quite over the top version and in the middle of it you've got um you know you've got keanu reeves and winona Ryder looking a bit lost <laughs> And then you cut to a scene where Tom Waits is sort of going mad and as a sign of you just think, what is this? Just like... Eating yeah. flies. <laughs> is Tom Waits eating flies in the asylum, isn't okay. it? Of course it is. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, it just is. In a way, it's wonderful because because I suppose you, he's supposed to be in the castle thinking, what the heck is going on? And he really does look like he's thinking, what the heck is going on? What film am I in? Yeah, exactly. it's almost like they're all speaking different film languages there but it, it makes for quite a spectacle. Yeah, it, it really does. Michael, many thanks for joining us. Come back in 100 years and uh, we'll, we'll see what the effect of them has been then. How about that? It's a deal. Thank you very much, Lee. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Miranda France and Michael Keynes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.